fight within the Southern Baptist Convention to fight against encroaching liberalism and to return the convention and its schools and seminaries to a conservative Bible-believing position. They felt that that was an issue worth fighting for. That is our subject today about knowing what's worth fighting for. Hopefully one of the first things that we learn as parents in the art of disciplining our children is the value of picking our fights. Not everything, not every situation is worth discipline. And so we have to pick our battles. That's a good strategy for home. It's good military strategy and it's good advice for every part of life. Not all hills are equal. Some are larger and more strategic. Not every hill is worth dying on. Make sure you pick the right hill to fight on, and when you find the right hill and stand, you need to stand for all you're worth. As Americans, we believe that freedom is one of those issues that's worth fighting for and even dying for. And if that's true of physical freedom, how much more so should it be for spiritual freedom? Paul had established churches in the Gentile region of Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. But after he left, some false brethren, as he calls them, uh, who claimed to be from the church at Jerusalem, moved into Galatia and began to undermine Paul's work. They confused these new Gentile Christians by attacking Paul's apostleship and also by telling the Galatians that they needed more. In fact, they needed to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses in order to be real Christians, in order to be saved. They were, in effect, attempting to change the whole nature of salvation. Now, when Paul heard that the Galatians were being swayed by these false teachers, he sat down and he wrote a very short and passionate and emotional letter. It is the letter that we call the Epistle to the Galatians. And in his mind, the battle for salvation by grace alone was a hill worth dying on. We pick up with our story as Paul makes his way to Jerusalem. And there are three things that I want you to see with me about this visit to Jerusalem. I want you to see, first of all, the occasion for the visit to Jerusalem. It says, then after 14 years, <clears throat> I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of the false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we had in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, 
that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Well, the book of Acts mentions at least four visits that Paul made to Jerusalem. The first visit was the one that we saw in Galatians chapter 1 and verses 18 and 19 when he, after some three years after his conversion, he went to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter, the apostle. The second trip is recorded in Acts chapter 11, and it was to deliver a monetary gift, a collection that Paul had made for the relief of the poor in Jerusalem during a severe time of famine. And the third visit, the one which we have also in our text, Galatians chapter 2, also revealed in Acts chapter 15. Well, it was during this visit that the Jerusalem council was held, at which time the apostles officially declared that the Gentiles would be accepted and welcomed into the church just as they were. Paul's fourth and final visit was one in which he was arrested and sent to Rome in chains. So we need to keep in mind that 14 years have passed since the trip that Paul mentioned just a few verses earlier in chapter 1. Paul says that he went up by revelation, that the idea being here that he went up to Jerusalem by the express direction of God, and it's not in the response to any call of any man. He's not being called on the carpet by the apostles in Jerusalem He is going because God has revealed to him it is now time. But I do want you to notice Paul's fear, verse number 2, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Now, it seems a little strange to my ears to say that Paul was afraid. The apostle Paul that we read about in the book of Acts is not a man who was readily given to fear. First, he was a bold persecutor of the faith, and after he was saved, he became an even braver preacher of the gospel. So what was a man like the Apostle Paul afraid of? Now, at first glance, it may appear that Paul is concerned that he's been wrong in his message or in his motivation, methods, and so now he's going to Jerusalem to meet privately with the other apostles to seek confirmation that what he is doing is right. But there are several reasons that that can't be true. First, Paul has already told us in chapter 1 verse 18 that he received the gospel as a direct revelation of the Lord. So it can't be that he feels like he's got the wrong message. Secondly, if he he were indeed having doubts about his message, why would he wait 14 years? That's a little long to get confirmation. And lastly, in chapter 1 and verse 8, he told the Galatians that if anyone, including himself, came presenting another gospel, that they were be rejected. How can he then come back to the Galatians and say, hey, I changed my mind about the gospel. 
The truth is that Paul is not expressing any fears or doubts about the gospel he's preaching, but it's fear that his ministry, both past and present, among the Gentiles will be rendered fruitless because of the Judaizers. Nothing was threatening his certainty, but something was certainly threatening his fruitfulness. I believe that he was afraid that the leaders in Jerusalem might cave in to the pressure that's being applied to them. He was afraid that they might either allow their own cultural biases, after all, they are Jews. How could they not have a pull to say, yes, I think it would be great that everybody become circumcised and that every male be circumcised and that everyone follow the law of Moses. They might give in to their own cultural biases or they just might, in the name of expediency, make a concession on this issue of circumcision. Well, we next see Paul's companions and he says, he also took Titus with him. And that's significant. Because Titus is an uncircumcised Gentile. Titus is is the perfect test case for the freedom of salvation through grace that Paul preaches. Here is a Gentile man who is proof, proof positive that one can be saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone without the works that are required by the law of Moses. The the question being asked of the apostles then is, did he or did he not have to be circumcised according to the requirements of the law? Paul didn't want this to just be a theoretical or a theological argument. He is not going to allow this just to be some kind of an abstract discussion. Here is a flesh and blood, uncircumcised Gentile. And he's saying to them, will you demand that this man be circumcised in order to recognize that he is a Christian? It's hard for us to understand, but circumcision meant everything to the Jews. It was the visible sign of of belonging to God's people. Under the Old Testament system, circumcision determined whether someone was or was not a part of God's covenant people. So the whole issue can be boiled down to this. Do you have to be circumcised to be saved? And part of our problem is that circumcision is not a hot topic today in the church. In 30 plus years of ministry, I never, well, I have a, I've had a lot of questions. I've never had anybody come to me and say, well, Brother John, is circumcision necessary in order to be saved? Nobody, not in 30 plus years. But it is important. <clears throat> John Stott says, It was a matter of fundamental importance regarding the gospel. The deeper issue is this. It is the perpetual danger of adding our own requirements to the only thing that God requires 
for salvation, which is faith in Jesus Christ. One of the old hymns of the faith says, Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. But our hope is also built on nothing more than Jesus' blood and righteousness. In verse number 4, the Judaizers are called false brethren. Of course, they didn't think of themselves as false brethren. They thought of themselves as the true brethren. But they were the false brethren because they were neither true to traditional Judaism because they claimed allegiance to Christ, nor were they true to apostolic Christianity because they were demanding that circumcision and keeping of the law of Moses be added to the faith. What began, I believe, as a private conference with the apostles only quickly became a full-blown conference with the Judaizers wrangling their way into the midst of a meeting and demanding that these new believers be circumcised, they're required to be circumcised, and keep the law of Moses in order to be Christians. Now, if, if the apostles in Jerusalem sided with or even tolerated the Judaizers, the church would have permanently be split into two sections, a Jewish church and a Gentile church. Neither side would have accepted the other, and each would have questioned whether or not the other was really saved. But the real issue is whether something is added to faith as being necessary for salvation. In verse 5, Paul says, To whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Paul says, This is a hell on which I will fight and I will die if necessary. Second, I want you to see the objective of the visit to Jerusalem. First of all, we see that it confirmed Paul's gospel. But from those who seemed to be nothing, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God showed personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. Paul says that the apostles added nothing to the message that he already preached. The answer given by the apostles in Jerusalem is that there will be no second-class Christians. All Christians will be saved in exactly the same way, by grace alone, through Jesus Christ alone. So today, we must resist any attempt to add anything to salvation by faith. Some churches teach that you must have faith in Christ, plus you must be baptized in order to be saved. Others teach that you not only need to be saved, but you're not really truly saved and not really sure that you're saved unless you've spoken in tongues. Some teach salvation by faith, but you can only be sure if you keep a list of do's and don'ts. And some teach that you're saved by grace, but you're kept by works. All are guilty of adding something to the simple salvation by faith. 
One result of Paul's trip to Jerusalem was that his gospel message was confirmed. Titus was not required to be circumcised. And the second result of the meeting concerned Paul's commission as an apostle. They confirmed Paul's calling in verses 7 and 8. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. There was a recognition of the different callings of Peter and Paul. They did not have different gospels, but they had different targets. But because some versions in the King James and the New King James uh, have this verse translated, and the gospel of the circumcision and the gospel of the uncircumcision, it sounds like there are two gospels. Some have drawn a conclusion from that that Peter and Paul preached two different gospels, one for the circumcised, one for the uncircumcised. And, of course, that is a completely unwarranted assumption. What is being recognized is that Paul has been gifted and entrusted with reaching the Gentiles just as Peter has been gifted and entrusted with reaching the Jews. There is just one gospel, but there are different areas of ministry for different people. That doesn't mean that Paul never tried to win any Jews. In fact, Paul had a burden, according to Romans chapter 9, a burden to reach his own people with the gospel. And his ordinary method of operation was that when he entered a city, he went first to the synagogue and preached among his own people. But even beyond this agreement that Peter would continue with his ministry and Paul would continue with his ministry, there is an acknowledgement here of apostolic equality, that Paul was not a second-rate apostle, but was equal in rank with the apostles who were in Jerusalem. Now look at third, the outcome of this visit to Jerusalem. The visit to Jerusalem began with the great possibility of division and dissension. But it ended with a decision for cooperation and agreement. First, there is the right hand of fellowship, verse 9. And when James and Cephas, or Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now, the right hand of fellowship is more than just a handshake. It was a symbolic gesture of partnership, partnership in the gospel. It meant that the Jerusalem leaders recognized Paul and Barnabas as partners in the spread of the gospel. When those present that day joined hands, it prevented a lasting division within the church, with Jews on one side and Gentiles on the other. Now, this agreement wasn't some kind of ecclesiastical decree from on high. 
but rather men who were representative of local, autonomous, independent churches agreeing to cooperate together for the furtherance of the gospel. Although independent of one another, they chose to work together rather than opposition to one another. We see also, secondly, the remembering of the poor in verse number 10. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. The apostles, in effect, only asked Paul to continue to do what he was already doing. Paul and Barnabas were aware of the great poverty in the church in in Jerusalem and had already collected offering and brought it as relief for the poor in Jerusalem, and they would continue to do so. I recently finished reading a book that Tommy Bates loaned me. It was entitled Unbroken. It's an amazing story of Louis Zapparini. He was a famous U.S. Olympic runner prior to World War II. During the war, his plane crashed in the Pacific Ocean. After floating for 47 days, fighting hunger and thirst and sharks, his wrath finally washed up on an island, a Japanese-held island, 2,000 miles from where he crashed. He was put into prison. He suffered almost unbelievable torture and hardship. One particularly vicious Japanese guard, nicknamed the Bird, made his life a living hell. He tortured Lewis daily. He beat him unconscious on several occasions. The Bird tried his very best to break Lewis physically and mentally. But he remained unbroken. The war ended. Lewis was liberated from his physical prison. But even after the war, he continued to fight personal, emotional, and psychological and spiritual battles. The war hadn't killed him, but the strain was about to destroy him. His constant drinking and his fighting threatened to destroy his marriage and his family. He had almost nightly nightmares of torture, which caused him to wake up screaming. Lewis was obsessed with one thing, traveling back to Japan and finding the bird and killing him. Every night, the bird haunted his dreams. He would wake up screaming at night during a nightmare, fighting this guard. He was no longer a prisoner of war, but he was in a worse prison. He was imprisoned by his own hatred and his desire for revenge. In 1949, a young, lanky Southern Baptist preacher from North Carolina set up a tent near Lewis's hometown and started preaching. His name was Billy Graham. Lewis's wife attended and soon gave her heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ. At first, Lewis resented, and then he resisted. But finally, he gave in to her pleas, and he went to hear 
Billy Graham preach. On the second night he visited, he gave his life to Christ, and his life changed immediately. He went home that night and poured out all of his liquor and began to clean his life up. Here's how the author, Laura Hillbrand, described the the next morning after Lewis was saved. In the morning, Lewis woke up feeling cleansed. For the first time in five years, the bird hadn't come into his dreams. In fact, the bird would never come again. When Lewis experienced God's grace and was born again, he was set free. Lewis ultimately did have a chance to go back to Japan, but not for revenge. Instead, he visited some of his former guards who were now Japanese war criminals. He shared about how Jesus had changed his heart. And as he reached out and shook the hands of the former prison guards, he told them that he forgave them in Jesus' name. God's grace had set him free to forgive. That's what God's grace does for all of us. We're in fact not born free spiritually. We are enslaved by sin. But praise God, we can by God's grace be born again free. And that is a truth that's worth fighting for. Let's pray. We're grateful, Father, for those who have fought in the past, both for our physical freedom, but more so for our spiritual freedom. For those who understood the necessity of fighting for the truth, that salvation is by grace alone, that nothing needs to be added to faith, no work of human hands are required, just repentance and faith. Father, I ask that you'd speak to our hearts this morning. There may be those here that are suffering under some burden, something that's holding them captive this morning. And Lord, I pray for the truth to set them free. There may be someone who's struggling with the issue of salvation. Lord, I pray for them this morning that they might know that that Jesus has already paid everything that's necessary on the cross of Calvary for our salvation. And all we need to do is accept that free gift. For us who know that we are saved, that we have an experience with our Lord, then I pray that you'd help us to live in the light of that, grateful for it, but also a willingness to share that with others. Lord, we ask that you come into our presence to change our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?